Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, T.D. Allman, author of the controversial book Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State, is giving a talk on December 5th at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. So you have this constant reinvention. Things are simpler for me because I stick to the facts. The real first Thanksgiving happened in Florida 55 years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. He actually talks about uh, Menendez uh, feeding and dining with the Indians. Florida sheet music, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Allman is author of the books Miami, City of the Future, and Rogue State, America at War with the World. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vanity Fair, National Geographic, Esquire, Harper's, and Rolling Stone. T.D. Allman's latest book is called Finding Florida, the True History of the Sunshine State. Although he now has homes in New York and the south of France, as well as Miami, T.D. Allman is a native Floridian. Yeah, I was born in Florida. I was born in Tampa. And uh, mother shot an alligator under the backyard one day. The house is on the uh, Hillsborough River. And uh, actually, I drove past there the other day, and I knocked on the door. And a, uh, a black man in his late 30s answered the door. And he said, oh, you must be the writer who lives in New York. And I gave them a copy of my book, and I pointed to the bedroom where I'd slept as a child. And because it was walking home from grade school in second grade at age seven, after being forced to read Dick Jane, see Jane Run, and all that stuff, I thought, I can write better books than that. And I have, as a matter of fact, and one is in front of us. And so I gave them the book, and I inscribed it to the fine folks who live in the house where I decided to become a writer age seven. By subtitling his book, The True History of the Sunshine State, T.D. Allman indicates his belief that at least some of Florida's previous history is false. I'd like to say two things about that. First of all, much worthwhile research has been done by individual scholars in Florida. There's a long list, uh, Eugene Lyon's splendid work on the actual Spanish foundation, never quoted, a great 19th century historian, uh, John Titcomb Sprague, who was the Thucydides of the Seminole Wars, never cited in conventional histories. Uh, but the history we know, the general history, is fictional. It was made up. It is basically neo-Confederate and racist in fundamental construction and false in everything it says up to and including the present. At the top of T.D. Allman's long list of false Florida history is what he calls the mythology of Ponce de Leon. 
This year, people throughout Florida are commemorating the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state by Ponce de Leon and his discovery of the Gulf Stream, which would make future colonization and the establishment of trade routes possible. We are also recognizing that his contact with Florida's indigenous population would lead to the destruction of complex societies that had existed here for thousands of years. T.D. Allman dismisses the importance of Ponce de Leon entirely. And they never named anything after Ponce de Leon. The Spaniards were here for 250 years. The Americans were here for quite a while, uh, and they never named anything after Ponce de Leon. Washington Irving in the early 19th century made up the Ponce myth as, as it was later purveyed. And then when rich men started coming down here, notably Flagler, he wanted a nice name for his hotel, and he sort of remembered Ponce de Leon, and he named it. And that decided it. I mean, this is a very Floridian American thing. Ponce de Leon today is a figure in American history because a rich man decided to name a hotel after him. And then later on, a fellow named Walter P. Fraser came down from Georgia, uh, and he was the one who uh, made up the Fountain of Youth. And he was able to buy up some land at uh, Depression-era prices, and he was a genius of a showman. And if we had time, I could document it. Up to about 1927, there are almost no mentions of Ponce and, and virtually no mentions of the Fountain of Youth. Some Florida historians are calling Finding Florida the true history of the Sunshine State refreshingly honest. Others say that author T.D. Allman is sometimes creating controversy where none exists. For example, historians do not claim that Ponce de Leon established St. Augustine, yet Allman rightly defends Pedro Menendez de Avales as the founder of that city in 1565. That said, not only does Allman find Ponce de Leon unworthy of recognition, he believes that St. Augustine should not be preparing to celebrate their 450th anniversary in 2015. Their phrase is the oldest continuously inhabited city. Now, if you go there and you ask, there's not one building there that, ate, that dates back before about 1820, okay? The, the city was emptied out many times. Uh, it would like the, the equivalent, what Ponce de Leon, I was thinking about this the other day, he's more like Sir Walter Raleigh. You remember those stories where Raleigh landed on the Virginia coast? And, but it was really only later when the people in Jamestown came in and bringing slaves with them that, um, that Virginia and America's history really began. So what you really have here, if you take these two parallel events, I think we really have to compare Menendez and his slaughter of the French. Let me just explain here what had happened. Uh, they had had many difficult and failed expeditions, the Spanish did, until finally the King of Spain banned further settlement here. He said Florida's soil was too sandy or harbors too shallow to admit a practicable settlement. That was until they found out the French had s made a settlement near Jacksonville, and it was like the uh, Bay of Pigs in reverse. Menendez tore across the Atlantic. He slaughtered the French, hundreds of them, more than a hundred of them. And as I say in my book, it was this first mass slaughter of white men by white men that really started our history, just as it wasn't Raleigh and the Pocahontas myth, but the arrival of serious slavery in Jamestown uh, that marked the beginning further north and, and so on. So I think we need to look at the realities. Today we face great problems in the United States and, and in Florida. Uh, let me put it this way. If you start with the Pontsmith and you go forward through the Confederate sh uh, Chevalier 
and the visionary and so on. Everything in Florida comes as a surprise. My God, this is supposed to be warm here. Yesterday, I nearly froze to death. You know, oh, there comes a hurricane. You know, all this stuff. If you look at Florida as it really has been, which is a, his, a very interesting history of struggle, of violence, of good people, of bad people, it's a much better. I tell, let me tell you one thing. If you read my book, Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State, you will have a much more interesting story than anything you ever learned in uh, school. Now, the other thing is, if you look at history as it actually happened, then you can understand things. Why do we have invasive species? Well, we are an invasive species because of Florida's subtropical location. And you go through all these things, and what I found fascinating is what normally seems sort of silly in Florida history, like the Ponce de Leon myth. Once you dig underneath, very fascinating things are happening. Some Florida historians are saying that T.D. Allman's frank critical analysis of Florida's Civil War and Reconstruction era and the historians who wrote about them is long overdue. Others believe that Allman is unnecessarily harsh in his critique and say that his commentary sometimes descends into gratuitous name-calling. For example, Carolyn Mays Brevard wrote an early history of Florida following the Civil War. She writes from a particular Southern perspective, to be sure, but Allman labels her a white supremacist. He is very critical of Florida historians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries and unapologetic about his descriptions of them. Harsh, these are value judgments. I tell what really happened, and I, I have a chapter in my book called Florida's Fake History. I'll repeat, Florida's Fake History. And I give the great poobah Florida historians their due. But, you know, it's not just the, the, the publicists, the propagandists, the people who really have tenure from the Chamber of Commerce. Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr., the revered icon of the Northeastern elite Ivy League establishment, his book on Jackson is twaddle when it comes to Florida because ja Andrew Jackson, as we all understand, played a very important role here. Most I could explain what that role is if we had enough time, but since Jackson's excesses here, to put it mildly, do not fit into Schlesinger's schema that Jackson was really a rather innocent frontiersman when he became president, he simply leaves out Florida. And Jackson's, and one of the things you may remember from high school or grade school is how Jackson came down here and hung two Englishmen. What we don't learn is that was part of one of the first great constitutional crises in the United States in which pitting Jackson against Monroe. And Schlesinger just leaves this out. So at every, I don't know why so many historians go along with it. The one historian, uh, one, let me talk about, in, I will say, is Florida's greatest living historian. He's a man named Cantor Brown. He never got tenure. He's not head of any Florida history department. He teaches in Georgia. And he was, he's done wonderful work on Ossian Hart. If you've never heard of it, go find out who Ossian Hart is. And he was writing basically the kind of stuff I am writing 20 years ago. And he went to the, one of the old professors who was going to get him tenure somewhere. And he said, now, young man, you don't want the Florida tail wagging the southern dog. And that's how you were expected to fit in. And when I write and when I write books, I don't care where, whether I fit in. What I care is whether I get the truth. And so did Cantor Brown. And there are a number of other very good historians as well. Florida's modern tourism industry and aggressive land development really began in the late 1800s. 
Harriet Beecher Stowe was one of the early proponents of Florida as a paradise for both visitors and new residents. T.D. Allman believes that the efforts to develop tourism and sell real estate has led to more Florida myth-making. Yes, I mean, the hurricane arrives on scene in the very first incident of, of recorded Florida, uh, of important Florida history, this massacre of the French uh, that I mentioned. But uh, you'd think Harriet Beecher Stowe, the great abolitionist, Lincoln said, oh, so this is the little woman who tore a country apart or something to that effect. She came down and she had a place on the St. John's River, which is not a river in Jacksonville. Go to your geology books or my book to find out what it really is. And she became a great propagandist for Florida. And when one of her guests dared to suggest that it got cold in Florida and that they had disease here, she was really quite irritated. And she said, really, this doctor, one might think he was a hypochondriac. And then she added, besides, the malaria in Florida is of the milder sort. Sidney Lanier, a Georgia poet who fought for slavery during the war, uh, you know, even then journalists were very cheap to buy. You gave you a free railroad ticket and they'd come down and write books. Poor man, he came down. He said Florida was a great place to cure yourself of tuberculosis. And then he went back to Georgia and died of tuberculosis. Harriet Beecher Stowe said, is it Florida's fault that invalids imprudently come here and die? So I, I describe, I say the hype is like, it's as though there's some elixir of falsehood in the water. You drink of it and, you know, slavery people, abolitionists, they all become, oh, come on down. Now, the problem is we, even in Florida, we have to live with the consequences of our actions. And there is one thing I will tell you about Florida that holds true from the very beginning to the There has not one, never in Florida do things turn out as you expect them to turn out. In his book, Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State, T.D. Allman takes the reader from prehistory to the present. He says that for more than a century and a half, Florida has been falsely mythologized as a paradise and that historians have been complicit in the misrepresentation. From probably the 1850s till really very recently uh, is, a, is a fake Florida history, a fake narrative which of a constantly reimagined Florida that never existed. You see, although they make up a mythological Florida, that Florida is constantly changing because it's the duty of this mythic Florida to correspond to what people often who have no interest in the facts and no interest in knowing wish it to have been. So if you went back, say, 60 years to like, or let's say go back to before World War II, or even quite recently, you would have people who would call uh, history books published in the 50s describe slavery as as the greatest institution for civilizing African savages that had ever been developed. You had chapters in res supposedly respectable history books called uh, the War of Southern Independence, if not the War of Northern Aggression. Now, those also painted Florida as this ideal place which had always been right pleasant. But, of course, then it was the darkies and the slaves. And now today, if you go to the same kind of people, they're saying, of course, slavery was evil, but, of course, it was always very nice. So you have this constant reinvention. Things are simpler for me because I stick to the facts. T.D. Allman is author of the controversial new book, Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State. He will be giving a talk at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa on Thursday, December 5th at 7 p.m. This is the truth. This is the truth.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Membership in the Florida Historical Society makes a great holiday gift. The recipient receives an FHS tote bag, a copy of the book The History of Florida by Tabot and Marina, four issues of our journal The Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter The Society Report. Giving a gift membership in the Florida Historical Society is easy. Just go to myfloridahistory.org and click on the gift membership box. That's myfloridahistory.org. We've come to the time in the season where family and friends gather near to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for blessings we've known through the years. Fifty-five years before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, Spanish colonists in St. Augustine shared a feast of Thanksgiving with Native Americans in Florida. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have some rare books in your collection that indicate that the real first Thanksgiving took place right here in Florida. Yeah, it's uh, really an interesting uh, point in, in the history of the Spanish presence in Florida. And most uh, people who are interested in Florida history and, and scholars are familiar with the 1565 uh, Spanish expedition of uh, Pedro Menendez de Aviles when he established uh, St. Augustine. But what's sort of a, an interesting side note is that as part of that expedition, when they first met with the, with the native people um, and established the town, they held a small uh, mass, a small service on the site that is now uh, St. Anastasia Island. So it's actually on the barrier island of uh, where modern St. Augustine is now. Uh, but they also uh, dined with the Indians and, and had what we would consider sort of the first um, uh, the first Thanksgiving, if you will, sort of the first uh, meeting and actual um, you know sitting down at the table and, and breaking bread, if you will, with uh, with the native the native peoples of of Northeast Florida. Now, one of the sources you have for this uh, real first Thanksgiving is from uh, historian Michael Gannon. Yeah, that's right, and and Dr. Gannon is uh, for. A, Decades really been the the preeminent scholar uh, on not only Catholic presence in in Florida but also the early colonial presence and uh, he published a book in the 1960s entitled uh, Cross in the Sand which is still it's actually still in print today and it's it's uh, one of the best sources for the uh, the history of the Catholic and and Spanish presence in Florida um, but he uh, actually went through a lot of the original um, original accounts and pieced together what this first Thanksgiving dinner would have actually looked like and he used a couple of sources. Um, uh, that we know of, there are actually only two uh, two written narratives of the of the account that that survive today. It's it's believed that uh, Menendez might have uh, a written narrative that that uh, survived for at least a few decades, but it, it's lost now. We don't know where it is. But um, one one of those accounts was from the uh, the priest who was on the expedition. Um, uh, Father Francisco uh, Lopez, who there's actually a statue of him up in, in St. Augustine now. Um, the other gentleman was uh, a doctor, Dr. Gonzalo uh, Solas de Meras, and uh, he was actually Pedro Menendez's um, brother-in-law, and he was the official uh, uh, recorder of the of the expedition. And it's interesting because both men picked up different aspects of the of the meeting. Uh, for instance, Father Francisco Lopez obviously officiated the the ceremony, and he talks about the Indians. Um, 
mimicking the, the Spanish, you know, when they were bowing down in front of the cross. And uh, it, it, according to his account, it seemed like the Indians were, were intrigued and interested, but don't, weren't really sure what was going on. Uh, but in the Solas de Meras account, um, he actually talks about uh, Menendez uh, feeding and dining with the Indians. Um, and then uh, after the mass was said, they dined. Uh, and then uh, Menendez sort of went on his way and, and they went about uh, continuing to build the fort uh, at St. Augustine. Now, just as an interesting uh, sidebar, uh, the one of the copies of The Cross on the Sand by Michael Gannon that you have in the uh, Florida Historical Society archived is actually uh, originally inscribed to uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Yeah, that's right. And that's another um, kind of interesting aspect of, of one of our uh, – one of the, the – Items in our collection. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, looks like it was given to Marjorie Doug- uh, Stoneman Douglas sometime in the late 1970s, 1978. Although the the book we have is a second edition, so it was printed in 1967. Um, uh, Marjorie Douglas must have uh, ran into him at some point and happened to have the book, and and he wrote a little inscription here that said, uh, "With the admiration and kindest wishes of Michael V. Gannon," and it's dated here, November 16, 1978. Now, as you mentioned, Michael Gannon uh, quotes Father Francisco Lopez, the priest who gave the first Mass in St. Augustine just before this Thanksgiving feast in 1565 and and other contemporary sources as well. Uh, Gannon was using uh, the primary source material, as you said, but you also have some of that in the archive. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I had mentioned the uh, uh, the Solas de Meras account, and it was originally published in Spanish or in, in Spain and in the Spanish language in um, shortly after the expedition, 1567, and it was lost for centuries. And it actually wasn't fully published until 1893, but it was still published in Spanish. But in the 1920s, a uh, historian, a Florida historian by the name of uh, Jeanette Thurber Connor. Uh, who was a member of the Florida State Historical Society, another contemporary organization with the Florida Historical Society, translated the entire account. Um, and that is that, that translation is what Dr. Gannon used as a primary source. And it is, to this date, uh, uh, as far as I know, it's the only, only English translation of that, um, uh, of that uh, eyewitness account. Now, historian Michael Gannon has said that the real first Thanksgiving in Florida consisted of a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans with ship's bread and, and red wine. I think I'm going to stick with uh, the Pilgrim's menu this year. Yeah, I'll have to agree with you there. I think uh, the uh, the canned cranberries uh, sound a little bit better than, uh, uh, than the, the peas and, and hard bread. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. We can learn a lot about history through creative cultural expressions such as art, literature, and music. Robert Casanello of robertcasanello.com tells us about Florida sheet music. You know, music has, has never really been a prime tool for scholarship, and, and that's a shame because at least prior to radio, music, and sheet music in particular, was one of the most effective communications devices that um, existed, especially in the 1800s. That was Danny Crew talking about the impact of music on history. Mr. Crew is the creator of the Florida Sheet Music Project, which can be found at floridasheetmusic.com. He's amassed a huge collection of sheet music and is digitizing sheet music about Florida or sheet music authored by Florida musicians. 
Here, Mr. Crew tells us how he got interested in this project. My real collection is in, in political sheet music. Um, I have the nation's largest collection of political sheet music and have published four books on it. As a side collection, about oh, 40 years ago, I guess, I started collecting Florida music. Uh, Florida has been my home for forever, and I went to high school here and college and all that. So, and I was always fascinated by, by the history of Florida. It's, it's so unique. And then in the 90s, the Internet came along and opened up a tremendously wide venue for searching for music uh, worldwide. Um, and in the 20 years since then, I've, my new collection is almost 8,000 pieces of Florida sheet music. Um, it's, it's really, it's really been, been a huge um, boon to the, to the um, search businesses to being able to, to look worldwide for these items. Mr. Crew explains why songs about states and locations became so popular. Early in the, in the 20th century, you could go down to your local music store or to a music publisher. If you had a tune, for example, they would have composers in residence that would write songs for you. A lot of these things are self-published. A lot of them are Tin Pan Alley. Every topic was covered. It didn't matter what it was. And Florida was just another one of those topics. You see similar type songs in other states uh, all around the country, everything from, you know, California, Here We Come, to beautiful Ohio. Uh, there's, there's a lot of songs like that, you know, that, that are state-oriented. Um, you know, the idea was to sell them to people who, you know, had those memories and, and enhance those memories. Here, Mr. Crew points to some notable musicians to tell us that we should not be surprised that there have been so many songs to originate out of the state of Florida. And I was absolutely amazed by people who are native Floridians that have had written music. And, and you know, most of these names have, have long been lost to history, and people don't, don't know them that well. Um, until, you, until you mention some of the songs that were written, for example, the, the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, was written by a Floridian. Strangers in the Night, Frank Sinatra's big hit, was written by a Floridian. Uh, you know, there's just, it, it goes on and on and on uh, that the, the Florida has produced such a wealth of, of talent that most people don't know about. Mr. Crew tells us about familiar themes and places that keep popping up in Florida songs. The idea of living in paradise is, is one of the themes that you see consistently. Everything from things like Moon Over Miami, which was written in the 30s, to songs even back in the 1800s about the Suwannee River. You know, the Suwannee River, I think, is one of the, the big, probably the biggest theme in Florida music. I, I have over 1,200 different editions of just of songs about the Suwannee River. It became more than just about the Suwannee River. It, it almost substituted for the South itself. Of course, like most enterprises based in Florida, the songs about sunshine, good times, and cool ocean breezes was just the latest in a long history of developers trying to draw people to Florida. Mr. Crew explains. I think it's kind of interesting to see how some of the music was, was actually uh, written and promoted for real estate developers, which is kind of like the, you know, the signature of Florida, at least since the 1920s, that these companies would put out these songs and you could actually, some of them you could actually fold over and mail to people up north and, and to try to get them to come down here and buy in these developments. I, I thought that was an interesting and kind of a unique thing that I've not really seen other places around the country. It's kind of unique to Florida's music. 
most of it's pretty hackneyed music. The music itself is 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 generally of little value, but the lyrics are interesting because this attitude and, and this vision of Florida as as a paradise and and a place where you'd want to come and live. That was Danny Crew, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, follow our daily posts on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a very happy Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.